Good morning. If you have your copy of God's Word, would you be turning to Acts chapter 1? Acts chapter 1, and we'll begin there in just a moment. Let me say that it's good to see you this morning. Thankful for the good crowd that we have here, the opportunity to study together. We miss being here on Wednesday night as we were with the Dunlap congregation all week with their vacation Bible school. I had a great time with that, really enjoyed uh, presenting messages each night and uh, enjoyed visiting with the folks there and uh, appreciate that opportunity, but certainly miss being a part of the body here. Hope that you all had a good Wednesday night for those of you that were able to be here. I uh, would also like to make mention for just a moment that it was certainly uh, a great week in our country in one sense with the decision that was handed down by the Supreme Court. Uh, we preached about that recently uh, on a Sunday afternoon. You can go back and find that lesson. I think it was either uh, the first of the year or the end of last year uh, when the idea of what the Supreme Court might be ruling was first leaked, that I preached a lesson at that point on well about as well about some of the ideas of abortion and, and what the Bible has to say about the matter. And you can always go back and review those lessons, or we can point you to other good lessons that deal with that material. Uh, this morning in our young adult and college-age class, that's what we talked about, uh, not only just really that topic, but the idea of communication. Last week, we had the discussion on how we can disagree with society and disagree with society, of course, uh, maybe this isn't the best way, but in a nice way, in a polite way, I don't know if that's the best way to word that, but how can we continue to have relationships with the world and have an opportunity to discuss the truth with people who are lost? Uh, we need to be able to do that in a kind and loving way, but also stand firm for the truth. So we kind of continue that discussion this morning as we realize that while we may agree that abortion is wrong and it shouldn't be something that is practiced, uh, it's not said and done in our country. There's still work to be done. There's still discussions to be had, and so we need to be informed first and foremost. So we need to be praying for our country, for expectant mothers, for everyone involved in this kind of situation. And so certainly we are thankful for maybe a step in the right direction, but as Christians we want to continue uh, to be open to discussion, to talking with people, and to continue to, to have this uh, type of uh, this type of dialogue with the world certainly so I want to make mention of that certainly and we have discussed it recently in some lessons so we won't uh, be talking about that necessarily today or anything like that we hope that you can be back with us this afternoon at 1 30 uh, we're going to look at the book of Hosea as part of our monthly uh, book club so to speak studying one particular book of the Bible and we hope that you can be back with us then or certainly stay with us for lunch and then be back this afternoon at 1 30. This week I had an opportunity to present a series of lessons that was, uh, the, the theme was dealing with the idea of being fearless, defenders of the faith. The material came from the Apologetics Press Company, uh, and I was very appreciative to have a, my hands on a copy of the adult material and be able to use that in my class, and it was just a wonderful, wonderful study. And as I was thinking about a lesson for this morning, uh, I want to begin with the first lesson that I did on Sunday night uh, last week because it deals with a topic that we have discussed before. In July of 2020, if you can think back that far, the world was certainly a far different place. As we were beginning to have our services again, I preached a series of four lessons on the idea of apologetics and what apologetics is. We, we introduced the topic. At that time, we talked about the idea that Jesus was the Son of God, that Jesus uh, came to earth as a man, and, and the, the ideas or the, that, that people will put out about maybe Jesus wasn't real or that kind of thing. We talked about the idea of evil, pain, and suffering and how that is a part of our lives, but we don't have to use that to say that God doesn't exist. Uh, on the contrary, 
We know that God exists, and evil, pain, and suffering are a part of this world, but not in the way that people usually like to make that argument. Number three, we talked a little bit about science and the Bible. We're going to touch on that a bit this morning, but it's all centered around this idea of apologetics. Apologetics comes from the word that's used in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense. That's that word there, apologia. That is the idea of giving a defense, not an I'm sorry, not an apology, but a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. That's how Peter says it. But we are to be ready to defend the faith, or in this case, to give a defense of the hope that is within you or within us. Do you have that hope within you? I think you're here this morning because you do, but could you tell somebody why? Could you give a defense in that way? It's not an apology, but an, a defense uh, of what we are talking about when it comes to the Bible. And what we're going to do this morning is, my clicker's going haywire here, is talk about Luke's writings for just a moment. Talk about some things from Luke that help us, as Luke gives a bit of an apologetic approach, uh, to discuss some things that we can take a firm stance upon the Bible and upon what Luke has to say and we're going to go through the book of Acts. I ask you to turn to Acts 1-1, and we're going to get there in just a moment. But as I said a second ago, giving a defense, I like the way that they put it in the material here. And that is that God expects Christians to give an outward defense of their inward hope. He expects that of us. Now, the problem that sometimes exists is people in the pews, and I've been there. I don't mean to just point the finger at you. But there is sometimes a difference. People make a difference between the people in the pews and the preacher. You see, the preacher went to college very often, and the preacher gets paid, and the preacher studies all week, so the preacher knows more than everybody else. But that's not what Peter is talking about or whom Peter is talking to when he says that we need to be ready to give an outward defense of our inward hope. He's talking to everyone. And so the, the problem that sometimes exists is that people will say in the pews, well, I can't understand all that science talk. I don't know Greek. I, I can't really understand all those things. I can't commit them to memory. I've got a secular job or I've got a family or all these things going on. And I, it's hard for me to commit to really being able to memorize all these facts that you talk about each week, preacher. And especially when it comes to these apologetics lessons. That, that's not what we're talking about. That's not what is expected of us. But at the same time, we do need to be, be able to give an outward defense of our inward hope. And this morning we're going to do that, not thinking about Jesus as a person, as the Son of God on the earth, or suffering, or even the idea of science, but we're going to talk about Luke's writings. The first step that we would notice, if you've got your outline in front of you, deals with the idea of accuracy. And that's really what the whole lesson is about this morning, but it's really the fundamental pr principle of all idea, the whole idea of apologetics. You see, our fearlessness, and that's what we talked about last week at the Vacation Bible School, but our fearlessness has to be based upon accuracy. It cannot be based upon the shifting sands of what we think or what we feel or what we believe. It must be based on the truth. The example that I often use, I've heard used many times before, goes all the way back to Joseph. You remember when Joseph was put into the pit by his brothers and then sold into slavery? They take his coat of many colors, they put blood on it from a, a lamb or a goat, they take it back to their father, 
and they present it to him, and they allow him to believe or feel as if Joseph is dead. In fact, if you go back and look at the account, that's exactly the way that he acts. It's as if Joseph is dead. But guess what? It doesn't matter how much he felt it or even how much he believed it. We know, we know, looking back, that Joseph was not dead. And we know as we look around our society, whether it be the question of gender or whether it be the question of gestation or a baby or all these things, we're trying to stand upon accuracy, not just what we think or what we feel or what we believe to be true. In fact, the way that Paul puts it in Romans chapter 10 in verse number 2 is that there are sometimes people who have a zeal, but they have a zeal without knowledge. And that's a problem. Now, we don't need to just have knowledge. We need to have zeal and a passion for the knowledge of the truth. But we also can't just have passion because we can have passion about lots of things. When you see these parades, when you see these protests, when you see all these things going on when people are marching and they're, they're trying to promote their idea about, again, some of these main topics, they've got zeal, but not according to knowledge and certainly not according to the knowledge of the Word of God. In other words, in order to be truly fearless in our faith, we must have accuracy. And what we want to look at this morning with the idea of Luke's writings is that Luke allows us to be accurate because we stand upon his word, which was inspired by the Holy Spirit, which is the word of God. And not just what my preacher says, not just what I think this week or what I feel to be true, but we can be accurate based upon the word of God. In Acts chapter 1, in verse number 1, we see that Luke's approach begins with a couple of words. There will be a couple of words in your outline, if you have your outline in front of you. Acts 1, beginning in verses 1 through 3 or 1 through 4 there. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Notice here, Luke is not making an emotional appeal. He's not expecting others to just blindly accept his testimony on the contrary, he uses deliberate words. He uses exact words to mean something and to cause us to understand the narrative that he is about to tell. And specifically, he uses two words. The first one there is translated presented. And it's used in one form or another 13 times in the book of Acts. We know that Luke wrote Luke, but we also know that Luke wrote Acts. And here in the book of Acts, he's going to use this word 13 times, and it emphasizes the apologetic nature of the growth of the first century church. See, they were growing, but they weren't steadily growing. They were shooting up and growing fast and quickly, and it was because they were using this apologetic approach of giving a defense based upon accuracy. For example, in Acts chapter 9, in verse 41, after God raised Dorcas from the dead, Luke says there that Peter called the saints and widows and presented, notice the word, he presented her alive to them. He proved that she was no longer dead 
instead of telling them and expecting them to believe. You know, it was a couple of months ago that we looked at the idea of Jesus and Lazarus. You remember that when Jesus calls Lazarus forth from the tomb, even before he does that, his sisters say, hey, you know what's going to happen if you crack that tomb, don't you? You know if you roll that stone away, there's going to be a stink beyond all measure because there is a dead body in there, right? Oh, he understood, but he also knew that he was about to do. And it wasn't that he went into the tomb and quietly whispered and arranged something and just came out and said, oh, he's alive, just take my word for it, no need to see it, he's alive. The same thing with Dorcas. Peter here doesn't go through and say, oh, she's upstairs, you don't have to see her, not a big deal, but trust me, just take my word for it. No, no, he presents her to them. And Luke is going to present these things to Theophilus as he's writing, but also to us. In connection with that, the second word is proofs that we mentioned there in Acts 1, verses 1 through 3. The proofs, or infallible proofs, is the word that Luke uses here. Luke is referring to Jesus' once lifeless body, his body, rising from the dead, and that over the next 40 days after his resurrection, he repeatedly presented himself alive to the apostles, offering many proofs. Jesus didn't offer some kind of vague, or he didn't offer subliminal messages. He didn't speak or move around in these whispers, just sort of this idea of the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit whispering into our lives. Instead, he, does, he, he doesn't offer visions or dreams, but instead he offered many proofs. According to one of our best Greek lexicons, this word means that which causes something to be known in a convincing and decisive manner. You know, it's interesting that a lot of times in court today, eyewitness testimony is not always the best thing, right? Because what happens is you get me who witnesses something in the parking lot, and you get Jerry maybe who witnesses the same thing, and Jeff who witnesses the same thing, and, and then we all go to tell what happened, and maybe we all tell it just a little differently. Maybe the person we thought we saw, I thought had on a, a maroon shirt, but Jerry thought it was, was black. And we, we saw the same thing, but we kind of remember it a little differently. That's not the case when it came to Jesus presenting himself by many infallible proofs. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15 verses 5 through 8, we see that during the 40 days that Jesus was on the earth after his resurrection, he appeared to several individuals, and on one occasion he appeared to more than 500 disciples. He's not relying upon just his inner circle. He's not relying upon visions and dreams, but he presented himself by many infallible proofs. In fact, we know as well from Luke chapter 24, Luke 24 verses 39 and also 41 through 43, that Jesus presented himself and to them in person. And when he did, he didn't stand afar off, right, like some kind of magician trick. Hey, guys, from over there, just look. You can see me. You know, I'm not going to come close, but just trust me again. He came to them, and we know that he showed his pierced hands and his feet. We know in verses 41 through 43 of Luke 24 that he actually ate with them. What more could you want? When it comes to apologetics and it comes to Luke's approach here, he presented many proofs to them. You see, it's not just a feeling that we have. It's not just something that Luke is going to make up. 
but it's a defense based upon facts. Very quickly, we want to notice three amazing, accurate ways in which Luke discusses things with people here, specific, specifically Theophilus and his writings to him, but also to us. When it comes to Luke, the, our brother Wayne Jackson in his writings says that Luke mentions in the book of Acts alone 32 countries, 54 cities, 9 Mediterranean islands. He also mentions 95 people, 62 of which are not named elsewhere in the New Testament. Not, not just made up, but 95 people, 62 which are not named elsewhere in the New Testament. And everything that he mentions is always reviewable. It's always checkable. They're always correct. And the point is, when it comes to accuracy and Luke's accurate approach that only inspiration, only inspiration of the Holy Spirit can account for Luke's precision. I've got a question for you, if you have your outline in front of you at the end of the lesson, when it comes to what this really means, we're going to drive home the point. But just think about accuracy as we work through these three points here. Number one, three examples of Luke's amazing accuracy. Number one, Luke's use of nautical terms. If you have your Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn to Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27. You see, when we think about Luke and his writings, what we often refer to, and it's not wrong, it's not wrong, but we often refer to the book of Luke or the gospel according to Luke, and we talk about the fact that Luke was a doctor, and we see about his medical writings or the medical terms in Luke's gospel. Nothing wrong with that. That's very encouraging as well. But let's think specifically about the book of Acts. And there is an abundant use of technical and nautical terms that are used in Luke's writings that are not found anywhere else in the New Testament. And there are a whole bunch of scholars that I could quote for you or to you who wrote about how amazing it is that Luke describes Paul's voyage here in Acts chapter 27. Now, I'm going to throw out a few verses at you. If you'd like to make notes, you can jot them down, or certainly, hopefully, you turn to Luke 27, and you can follow along as we look at some of these terms. In verse 40 alone, we see the idea of anchor. We see the idea of bands or ropes. We see the idea of a rudder. Those are all boat parts. In chapter 27, in verse 17, he mentions this idea of cables, boat types, Chapter 27 and verse 41, he mentions specifically a vessel. Chapter 27 and verses 2 through 44, he talks about a ship. In chapter 27 and verse 16, he uses the idea of a skiff. Three different boat types that are used. So we've talked about boat parts. We've talked about boat types. There are some verbs that are used. In chapter 27 and verse 15, he talks about head into the wind. Chapter 27 and verse 27, that they were driven about or up and down. Verse 28, they took surroundings. And even if you're making notes, you might jot down chapter 21 and verse 3. He talks about that they were going to unload cargo. Now, back to chapter 27, and verse 28, he talks about the idea of fathoms, or nautical distances, fathoms. In chapter 27, in verse 11, he talks about the people or positions on a ship, master, helmsman, or captain, the owner of the ship. 
verse 27 and verse 30 talks about sailors. And even in chapter 27 and verse 14, he talks about a headwind. Or you may see a word there, the idea of northeast, northeast, northeaster, excuse me, or the Eurocliden. He makes reference almost in a scientific way to types of winds. Luke's use of these terms, and not just these terms, but so many of these terms. You see, I could make mention of a rope. I could talk about a rudder, as we did with the tongue last week. I might, in just talking, stumble upon a nautical term. But Luke doesn't just use them. He uses so many of them that it illustrates his grasp on his surroundings, on the situation that's occurred in Acts chapter 27, as well as his correct and accurate use of these terms. I don't know if you've ever met somebody who's not that knowledgeable in, in boating. I, I've said before, I'm not really. I think I said it last week. But if I got on a boat like Paul did here, and I came back to you in maybe this type of setting, and I tried to explain what just took place, I would be doing like a lot of you, which would be, you know, they put that thingy over there, and then they did this, and then they dropped that, and I really don't know what happened, but we made it from here to there, and that's it. That's all I would know. But Luke speaks as a type of writer that truly understands these things that he has been a part of. Once again, not just by inspiration that the Holy Spirit has breathed upon him some kind of thing that he wasn't aware of, he was actually a part of these voyages, and he could speak to them very accurately. And in his writings, those who know, again, going back through commentators and even people who know boating and that kind of thing, have written to explain that he knows exactly what he is talking about, and his attention to detail is so great that it's really unbelievable. And, and it goes back to our main point. There's only one explanation, and that is inspiration. Inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the example that's used in the book, and, and when you talk about how Luke described these things, and I thought it was a good one. I, the one I used at, at Dunlap the other night, I was kind of standing in the middle of the auditorium, and I was standing between Hannah and, and her dad, Freddie. And the example they use in the book is of an NFL game. That's somebody who knows football, right? We like football here in the South. If you talk to Hannah about the game of football, she's somewhat knowledgeable. She can tell you what a quarterback does. She can talk to you about some position, even though many of the rules and that kind of thing. But if you talk to Freddie, Freddie's played the game. Freddie's you know, dissected the game, has looked at a playbook, that kind of thing. He really knows. Go a step further and think about an NFL coach. If you don't know the game of football and you try to sit down and understand the game of football, are you going to understand everything an NFL coach says to you? Probably not. Just like if you sat down and talked to a sailor or a captain and they start really going into detail about a boat, you're probably not going to understand it all. If you talk to somebody on the other end of the spectrum, like Hannah in the football example, that's somebody who's never really been on a boat either and maybe can't understand these things. Luke finds the middle ground in a sense. He's not just somebody who's never been around this thing and he's not an expert, but yet he's able by inspiration to speak accurately about what he understands. Think about in that example, again, if there's somebody between the NFL coach and, and Hannah or, or something like that who can explain to you the game of football, that might help. And in Acts chapter 27, that's the way in which Luke begins to describe these nautical things. He does so in such a way that people can hear and understand what he's talking about. But it's not just somebody who is completely ignorant of boating and nautical things either. 
All right, moving along here. Number two, turn to Acts chapter 17 and verse number six. Acts 17 and verse six. Another accurate example of Luke's writings is the term polytarch that's used here in Acts chapter 17 and verse six, as well as in Acts 17 and verse number eight. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to thee, and here's the word there, rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Now, if you're like me, I always love this verse, but it's because it's a powerful example of what the disciples were doing, right? You've probably seen it on the theme of a VBS or a sermon, turned the world upside down. This is, man, powerful stuff in this verse. But it's also an important verse because of this term that's used there of rulers of the city. You may see city officials or city authorities. That's this word polytarch here. And guess what? It appears in the New Testament zero times in the New Testament. Not only that, but when you go through Greek literature, it's used zero times in Greek literature as well as an official title. You say, well, that's interesting. Why do you mention that, preacher? Well, it's because what happens then is when Luke is the only one that uses this term, and it's nowhere else in Greek literature, what people do, skeptics do, is they say, well, you know what? Luke must have made that up. That, that must be some kind of fake term that he just invented. So there's no way that he's writing by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you're jotting some verses down in Acts 16 and verses 19 and 20, the words that are commonly used are authorities or magistrates. That's the word that's used. And so this is a great point for our idea of apologetics because what somebody might say is, wait a minute, preacher, you've just told me that Luke is accurate. He's meticulous and accurate in his writings, and you mean to tell me that he didn't use the more common word that other people use and said he kind of made one up? Did he make a critical mistake? And of course, as is always the case, time answers that question. Because in the 1960s, a man named Carl Schuler published a list of 32 different inscriptions bearing the name Polytarch. And approximately 19 of the 32 scriptures or inscriptions, not scripture, but inscription, came from Thessalonica, the area that we're talking about in Acts chapter 17. If you go back in my Bible, it's got a heading at the beginning of Acts 17, but it says preaching Christ at Thessalonica. So these inscriptions, 19 of the 32, are found where Luke was when this was taking place. In fact, let's go a step further. There is even an inscription right now in the British Museum that's been dated somewhere between 30 and 143 B.C. And it begins with the phrase, the inscription that you can go see, begins with the phrase, in the times of Polytarchs. You see, some people would say that Luke made a mistake. But as, our, as, as commentator Gareth Reese says, Luke was exactly right. And the critics exactly wrong. Who cares that it's not used anywhere else in the New Testament or in Greek literature? Luke didn't just make it up because we found it in other places as well and used in the same city in which he would have been in when he talks about these politarchs or city officials. Very quickly, number three here, there's also a use of geographical and topo topographical references that give us an accurate description in the book of Acts, Luke's writings. 
If you're still in Acts 18 or nearby there, Acts 18 and verse 22. Acts 18 and verse 22. And when he, that's Paul, had landed at Caesarea and gone up, that's the key word here, gone up and greeted the church at Jerusalem, he went down to Antioch. Now, I didn't put a map in my slides here, but the problem comes in if you look at a map that when it talks about going up to Jerusalem, it's actually down from Caesarea. He actually, in our minds, would go south to Jerusalem. And then it says he went down to Antioch, but he goes up because Antioch is above Jerusalem. You may also notice in Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9 and verse 30, a similar thing, that when the brethren at Jerusalem found out they brought Paul, that's, or him, that's Paul, down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Once again, that's not the way we would use the terms as we look at a map and say up, down, or even north and south. And so people will look at that and they'll say, well, maybe Luke doesn't understand direction. Maybe Luke just doesn't know what he's talking about. And maybe the Bible just isn't accurate. But there's a very simple explanation for this. And it's not that we're talking about north, south, or up, down. It's that we're talking about elevation. And Luke knows this. When we talk about geographical and topographical, Caesarea is 43 feet above sea level. Antioch is 279 feet above sea level. And Jerusalem is 2,500 feet above sea level. So when Luke says that they went up to Jerusalem, they're going that far above sea level, and then they come back down to Antioch. And with this in mind, we can understand Luke's seemingly mistake in direction as exactly correct because it just simply deals with elevation. Now, I know over here we understand the idea of elevation. We go up and down the mountain a lot. But let me suggest to you, people use these examples to try to discredit the Bible, but it's something that even children can understand. You see, I presented this lesson last Sunday night to a group of adults in auditorium, kind of as I'm doing right now for those mainly listening. But downstairs in the basement area, the Dunlap congregation, these children were learning the exact same thing. And I had a six-year-old that came home that understood that when Luke said that they went up to Jerusalem, he said, well, they were going up a big hill. That's what it means. That's exactly what it's talking about. And yet we have so-called scholars And so-called people, skeptics, and atheists who will try their best to discredit the Bible and tear it down with just a fundamental misunderstanding of what Luke is talking about in his writings when he is without a doubt 100% accurate. Luke is not mistaken when it comes to nautical terms, when it comes to Greek words used for city officials, when it comes to elevation or geography or topography, whatever. Luke is not mistaken. He's guided by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he is without a doubt 100% accurate. And this may be very interesting to you. And it may be not interesting to you. But let me encourage you to remember that it allows us to stand upon truth and upon accuracy. And it allows us to be fearless. You see, here's the question as we conclude this morning. Do you trust the Bible? You may say, well, that's great, preacher. You're still talking science and and, and seafaring things, and I don't get it. I don't understand. Why, Why are we wasting our time on this? The question is, do you trust the Bible? If you want to be fearless in your faith and sharing with others, do you trust the Bible? 
This morning at the end of our class, we were discussing about this idea of abortion and things. Someone asked and said, well, well how can I talk to Christians who say that abortion is okay? How, how can I try to have that discussion? Folks, it really comes down to trusting the Bible and the Word of God on, ma on matters both related to Scripture, salvation, worship, and even science and accuracy in all things. Do you really believe that the Bible is the Word of God? Because if you're just going upon what you think and what you feel and you're discussing with people based upon what you think and what you feel, that'll change. What they think and what they feel, it'll change. But when we stand upon the inerrant, God-breathed, complete, and reliable, void of all contradictions, word of God, we are accurate. And we can have fearless faith. If you trust the Bible, do you read and study the Bible? Do you accurately handle the Bible, as Paul would write to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15? Present yourself approved to God, a worker that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing or handling a right, accurately handling the word of truth. The problem is we say, oh, I can't understand medical terms. I can't understand science. I just can't know those things. And that's exactly the opposite of what's true. The truth is we can study. We can take comfort in the word of God. And we can begin to present even a preliminary facts about these things to the world. We can stand upon the word of God, as our children sometimes sing, the B-I-B-L-E, with confidence, with accuracy, with faith, knowing that it's true. From what God says about salvation all the way down to what he says about medicine or voyages or topography or whatever it might be. Of course, first and foremost, we're thankful for the fact that he has given us a plan a plan of salvation that we can know and understand. And if you're here this morning, as we conclude this lesson, we're about to sing this song of encouragement that you would understand that the Word of God is accurate, both in those scientific and medical ways, but also in ways of salvation. God has told us what we need to do to have a home in heaven to be saved. And if you're here this morning and you're not a child of God, we'll be singing to encourage you that you would become a child of God, putting on Christ in baptism, allowing His blood to wash away your sins. If you'd like to know more about this, we would study with you as soon as possible. Maybe you're here this morning and you've done that, but you've wandered away. Maybe it's through a belief in things that aren't accurate. Maybe it's because of sin in your life that separated you from God. Maybe it's a struggle of some sort that you have that you'd just like to share with your brothers and sisters in Christ. We're thankful to stand upon the word of God, which allows us to be brothers and sisters, to have a family, have a God that loves us, promises that he will forgive us, and a son of God who promised to go and prepare a place for us, which he has done, and he will come again and receive us unto himself, that where he is, we can be also. We're thankful for that promise. We're thankful for the coming day of judgment, and the question is, are you right with God? If you need to become a Christian this morning or come back to him, we'd be singing to encourage you as we stand together and as we sing.